I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire to sign up today. And now to our conversation. Finally, summer is over. The relaxation, beach vacations and barbecues are behind us. And in this post-Labor Day glow, Americans can focus on our prime national sport, the one with the late hits, flagrant fouls and crazy fanatics. Of course, I mean politics. And while this glorious season brings out the political junkies, it also brings out the political crazies, the extremists who have spent their time since the last election cycle tearing down the governments we elected and creating the conflict that makes politics a full-contact sport. As we speed into the final lap of midterms 2014, where do we stand? What is the state of our political debate? With President Obama's approval ratings continuing to flounder, and with Senate control still an open question, what role might political extremism have on our campaigns and results? Few follow the process and the politics more closely than John Avlon. He's editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast, a CNN contributor, and author of multiple books, including the recently re-released Wingnuts. Extremism in the Age of Obama. John, thanks for joining me. This book is actually an update to your original version back in 2010. Why the update? Have we gotten wing nuttier since you originally reported the story? (laughs) Well, you know, a lot's happened in the last four years. When the first book uh, edition was released, um, we were were on the the rising tide of wing nuttery in American politics. Um, uh, but it was released before the 2010 elections and the Tea Party takeover of Congress. Um, at the time and in the first edition, uh, you had figures like Glenn Beck and Sarah Palin and Keith Olbermann uh, were very, very powerful and influential. Uh, and, and all three of those individuals have really flamed out uh, for, for various reasons. Um, so you've just seen an enormous amount evolve in the story. Uh, you've seen fever break in some areas, but you've also seen government become even more broken as a result of the wing nuts. So I, I, I thought that it was time to, to update the book to account for the rest of the story to sort of complete the arc, as it were. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I also added a chapter uh, called A Brief History of Extremism in American Politics that really does in one chapter what was sprinkled throughout the book, which is to understand our politics, particularly the outbursts of extremism, you need to understand the antecedents. You need to understand that some of these right-wing radio snake oil salesmen are just parroting talking points that go back to the John Birch Society, uh, to the anti-immigrant know-nothing movement, um, that these rifts are old in our politics. And when you understand that, you can identify them and call BS a little more quickly. Let's talk about that history for for a moment. I mean, I, I want to get into as well, you, you, you really tie 
apply the the wing nut and the extremism approach to some real policy and I mean real challenges to the you know stability of of our government. But but on the history because that was one of the things that that going into the book I was wondering about and then I you know I saw of course that you you dealt with it. You know on some level you know to what extent is is this new or more extreme i mean you you talk about some of it the john birch society other you know other histories i mean we all remember of course the clintons claim at least most of us do the clintons claim in the 90s of a vast right wing conspiracy in the you know 80s i mean there's so much concern from the left that neocons were bringing in their version of the wing nuts i mean you know you have the joe mccarthy's and you know are are things truly worse now with obama or is this just the current day version of an american political tradition <laughs> well, I, I think things are, are different, and it's largely because of, of the amplification of the Internet and the rise of partisan media, as well as the polarization of the two parties along uh, even more stratified ideological and geographic lines. So those are, those are new dynamics that are impl- amplifying the voice of the extremes in our politics. You know, in, in the past, there was a certain control. Uh, in place simply because it was difficult for people with extreme views to congregate uh, across the tyranny of distance. But the internet uh, solved, quote unquote, that problem. Um, and, and, and the other countervailing forces are uh, the polarization of the two parties, um, where ironically the party of Lincoln is now based in the states of the former Confederacy, uh, which is of course a historic irony and, and a reversal uh, of, of a tradition. Yeah. Um, and 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 the the rigged system of redistricting, uh, getting rid of uh, competitive seats, so both parties and members of Congress are primarily concerned with playing to the base rather than reaching out across the aisle. Um, so we've faced these forces before. That's the good news. We've defeated them before. They surface in times, particularly, you know, demagogues do well in economic downturns. Um, and that's something that we saw at the outset of the Obama presidency in particular, uh, that old cycle reasserting itself with the Great Recession. Um, and, and demagogues who always play the us-against-them card uh, rising to prominence. Um, but, but what is different is those three new factors um, and the Internet creating these echo chambers in particular um, that are really um, – really destructive. I mean, one of the core ideas that Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a former senator, used to say is everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. Um, and one of the things the internet does is it's a, it's a incredible proliferator of, um, of false information. People ironically have reacted to the, um, the, the openness of information by self-segregating themselves into separate political realities by choosing to feed off partisan news sites, and that's seen also on cable news uh, today. Um, and so that, that drives it. I mean, we've seen a reversal, you know, a, a, with the Clinton Wars a decade ago, which now look quaint. And ironically, many of the anti-Clinton uh, hysterics at the time um, ended up essentially recanting and saying, actually, Bill Clinton was a great president. <laughs> it's really kind of amazing uh, to, to look back at that history um, in not so distant past. But, you know, in, in the 1990s, po- politicians gave talking points to talk radio. Now talking, talk radio gives talking points to politicians. So have we faced these forces before? Yes. Can we do it again? Yes. Is it as bad as it was in the 1860s or the late 1960s or, 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 um, or in the 1930s? No, there's reason to hope. 
But there are different driving factors, and, and one of the really uh, deeply concerning parts is that divided government doesn't work anymore because of these forces. That's something new in American politics, and it's something really troubling that does threaten to destabilize our democracy. In fact, that's one of the things you write at the very beginning of your book that kind of centers this, in my view, as not just a, you know, what boy, isn't politics crazy type book, but a, wait a minute, this is an important trend that is not just, you know, relevant for our politics, but also our policy and, and, and how we govern ourselves. I mean, you know, you wrote, hyperpartisans are playing with the forces that can easily get out of control and threaten to destabilize our democracy. Um, d- describe that for me. What, what are the risks that you see today? Oh, the, the risks that cut to the heart of, of us being a functioning representative democracy. Um, you know, we have polarization and paralysis right now in Washington. Historically divided government, if you're an independent like me, you've always liked divided government. Independents tend to vote for divided government because the idea is there's a check and a balance. No party, you know, we're not a parliamentary system. One party doesn't have control over the whole government. And traditionally divided government meant that the parties had to compromise. No no one got a blank check. And we did great things in our past. I mean, with divided government, we did the Marshall Plan. Uh, we, we, we did the highway system. We did the civil rights bills. Uh, we All the accomplishments of the Reagan administration occurred with Tip O'Neill as Speaker of the House. Uh, even Clinton and Gingrich, who hated each other's guts, got welfare reform done and turned you know deficits into surpluses. Um, the, 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 the deep, cynical, self-defeating gridlock and the deep, deep, unprecedented polarization in Congress uh, means that we see things like a government shutdown when nobody wants one. Um, you know, you can see Republican Party leaders saying there shouldn't be a shutdown, there shouldn't be a shutdown, but all of a sudden our government shuts down. And strategic competitors like China look at us and, and they start to laugh. Um, you start to see market Leninist forces um, around the world say, well, maybe the American form of democracy uh, can't get anything done. It's inefficient. They're their own worst enemy. Um, that's dangerous. That's destabilizing. When there are only 35, 35 competitive congressional seats left. So everybody else has, has a safe general election because they, 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 they drew the, the lines to create safe districts. Um, it, it, the incentive structure is all screwed up. All you worry about is losing your seat if you're a member of Congress by alienating you know, the 5% base of the electorate. And you, you have a, actually a perverse disincentive uh, to actually try to work across the aisle to solve problems. Um, you know, look at the way people run for president now, particularly in the Republican Party. Now, usually if you run for president, you want to be more responsible because, well, I don't know, it's a responsible position. and You need to ultimately unify the nation and win a general election. Well, the whole primary process, now there's an incentive to saying more and more irresponsible things to throw red meat to bring out the base, uh, which seems more rabid and, and, and sometimes illogical than ever from, you know, confronting, you know, basic problems with dealing with science um, to uh, the, the increased role of, of, of theology in, in our politics. Um, and, and none of it bodes well. It is destabilizing. It is unrepresentative. And I think one of the things Washington's missing is a lot of the populist anger out there right now is at government inefficiency and mismanagement. And, 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 and it's not simply um, – you know, throw the bums out because they're not partisan enough. I think there's a Main Street anger at the fact that most people in America go to work every day with people who look different, they think different, and they find ways to work together as a team to solve problems. And Congress seems totally suspended from those basic rules of American life. Um, But I don't think we should underestimate the extent to which this is a 
really destabilizing um, threat to the idea that American democracy can function uh, to solve long-term problems. In fact, many of the rules that apply to uh, the workplaces that you describe, you know, the ones that you work in or I work in, don't apply to Congress, don't apply to the Senate, and, and you know, that comes up very often, and that's just a, another thing, in, in my view, that, that, you know, drives Americans crazy and makes it feel to, to many of us um, like they're just, you know, they're, they're out of touch and the efficiency isn't there. Um, as you looked at this again in 2014 um, and having looked at it in the past, um, is there an equal distribution of wing nuts across the political spectrum? Um, no, frankly. Um, at this particular moment in our history, um, you have what's called asymmetric polarization. And you can, you know, do this by congressional voting patterns. It's not just a subjective opinion. Um, the Republican Party is much further right than the Democratic Party is left by any historic measure. Now, I say that as an independent and a centrist, it's very important for me to point out in the book uh, that there are extremes on both sides um, and that there's sort of a feedback loop between the two. Um, you know, extremes fundraise off the other side's extremists. I think a lot of the emotional connection to the two parties is largely based on a negative association of extremes on the other side. Um, and and, and, and I, I do think it's important for people to understand that. Uh, some of my liberal friends, you know, were, were – maybe not friends, uh, will we'll say that, oh, you're engaging in moral equivalence because you talked about Keith Olbermann in this book after you talked about Glenn Beck. Um, I, I think it's an attempt at moral clarity. You, you, know, you, you want to be consistent, and the partisanship in our politics is such that uh, sides will essentially kind of dismiss the extremes. You know, partisans will the, ex, dismiss the extremes on their own side rather than being really willing to confront them. Um, but, but, but seen with any sense of perspective, um, I, I really think you, you, and this is data, not opinion, um, the Republican Party has moved much further right in recent years um, than the Democratic Party has moved left. In fact, the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton recentered itself quite effectively. Um, and as I point out in a, in a chapter in this book called Hunting for Heretics, um, you know, Ronald Reagan wouldn't pass you know, the, 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 the ideological litmus test today. Here's a guy who signed an abortion uh, bill in, in, um, in California, raised yep. taxes as governor yep. of California. He couldn't get the Republican nomination today. Um, you know, Barry Goldwater was pro-choice, famously argued for gays in the military in the 1980s, saying you don't have to be straight to shoot straight. Um, he couldn't get past a Republican primary today. So that, that's a gut check that should make us really question uh, that ideological um, intolerance that, that seeps through a lot of our politics today. Um, that said, um, there's a dynamic which a lot of folks know called rhino hunting the Republican Party, where people say, oh, you're a Republican in the name, name only, only. Yep. rhino, yep. and we're going to try to kick you out. Well, there's dino hunting on the rise of the Democratic Party. It's less evident now, but you're starting to see a strange of resurgent uh, folks on, 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 on the, the very liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and they're starting to see centrist Democrats as the enemy. Well, you um, saw it a little bit. for that dynamic. Didn't you see that a little bit as well um, in the Clinton? You, you mentioned the welfare reform. Um, that was one of the first times that, you know, that, it, it, that I recall. I mean, it surely happened previous to that, but that was a when, – when that welfare reform passed, there was some of that. Um, at that point as well among liberals saying that, uh, you know, Clinton had sold out on, on that welfare reform. Oh, there, there have always been divisions. I mean, the whole rise of Bill Clinton as chairman of the Democratic Leadership yeah, Council yeah, yeah. was a challenge to the left wing of the Democratic Party, um, whose dominance had done what, you know, had, had, had uh, helped aid the uh, Democratic Party to lose 
more than 40 states in four straight elections. People forget that. Um, you know, that, that, that's not subtle. And all that, in part, is also a hangover. Um, I mean, you look at the rise of Richard Nixon to the presidency in 1968. It's absolutely partly a function of the fact that the, the cultural left had gotten so extreme with, with black power movements and arson and, and the new, new left really destabilizing society that the moderate majority of Americans swung Republican. And, and that that far-left uh, patina, um, I think unfairly associated with John, George McGovern's candidacy in 1972, um, Really, really, that hangover lasted for decades until Bill Clinton took on the far left, recentered the party, and did it as a real matter of, of a mantle of his leadership. So, yes, there were divisions, but he was able to effectively bridge them. What you don't have is a Republican leadership coalition at this point. You don't have uh, that other dynamic, and you are starting to see Democrats take their ga- political gains for granted and start to say – and you see it in this election in particular, uh, that, that you know, Democrats living, surviving in red states, if they don't sort of check off every litmus test in the liberal playbook, that they're seen as you know, corporatists. They're part of the problem. Um, well, you've got to rationally ask yourself, would you rather have a Democrat in that seat from Louisiana or a Republican? Um, you know, the absolutism in our politics is a big part of the problem. It's people who believe in all or nothing. Um, and, and, you know, ignoring electability ends up being a fingerprint of fanaticism. And I'm just saying that it's not as widely recognized yet. And I don't know if it will ultimately crest the way the Tea Party has, because there are more conservatives in the country than liberals. But, but you're starting to see a lot of those same impulses emerge from the left, and we haven't seen that in recent decades. And so let's take that and, and segue quickly, um, because I want your views on politics of the day. And on some level, um, we, we got to start in Kansas. And, and to, you know, on some level, maybe some of what you're discussing um, you know, comes to play there. The Democratic candidate for Senate, Chad Taylor, pulls out, leaves the independent Greg Orman, left to fight it out with the uh, incumbent Republican Pat Roberts. Um, is this a pushback against extremism in in Kansas? Is this just you know de- pure play, you know pure reality check? Democrats aren't winning that seat, so you know we better pull out and and do what we can to at least keep it from from moving to, you know or staying too far to the right. What, what what do you make of what happened in Kansas? Look, I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's right on the news. I'm actually going to be interviewing the independent candidate later today. Um, it is a fascinating dynamic, and I think there are a couple of things at play. First of all, Kansas is a deep red Republican state. Yep. But, you know, just as we're actually seeing the Republicans campaigning very competitively for the governorships of Illinois and Massachusetts, both for Democratic states, ultimately, you know, the American people are smart and they've got a sense of the center. Um, and, and the governor uh, of Kansas, um, a very right-wing Republican named Sam Brownback, uh, very theological uh, in his approach to politics. Um, cut taxes enormously, and all of a sudden has big deficits. Sort of giving a local example of the fact that all tax cuts don't pay for themselves. Um, making cuts in things like education, which um, and also lead, trying to lead a party purge of more centrist Republicans, which people didn't take kindly to. Sam Brownback in the governor's race um, is currently trailing the Democrat. That's highly unusual. Against that backdrop, um, it's very interesting that the Democrat dropped out of the race, but it's a recognition that the independent actually has more better chance of uh, beating uh, Pat Roberts, the Republican incumbent. And that's a game changer with a Senate for, for this election, um, with the Senate so tightly divided here because Republicans took that seat for granted. As an independent, I feel very passionately about this. More than 40% of Americans self-identify as independents, the largest and fastest growing segment of the electorate. It's particularly true among millennial voters. Um, 
independents tend to be fiscally conservative and liberal to libertarian on social issues. Um, and we've got an independent in, from Maine in the Senate, Angus King. And if you get a couple of uh, a few more independents in the Senate, um, it could really change the dynamic um, because it can change the balance of power and create opportunities for the sort of bridge building that you rarely see. But it is a big, big deal. Uh, in Alaska, interestingly, just a few days ago, um, Democrats threw their support behind an independent candidate for governor along the same lines. Um, and independents are dramatically underrepresented in our politics. It's a source of great frustration for me. Uh, and it's, it's a sign of a, of, a, of a fascinating change. The fact it's happening in Kansas is what's so extraordinary. So mentioning Alaska, mentioning, uh, of course, Angus King in Maine, uh, quickly with the you know, Senate control being such a massive, if not the issue, and, and the thing that most of us uh, are watching around the, uh, the, the midterms, um, with your wingnut glasses on, what races are you really, are you really watching? <laughs> well, wingnut glasses are uh, it's almost a separate question. I mean, um, you know, we're seeing people like Michelle Bachman uh, mercifully leave uh, Congress, but they're with the wingnut glasses. I think they're 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 definitely people who've gotten Republican nominations in in safe seats that are far 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 out. Um, so the, the problem isn't entirely done. That said, there are some hopeful stories. There are three openly gay or uh, uh, freedom to marry Republicans running for uh, Congress. That itself is a real sign of progress in terms of shaking up coalitions. Um, but in terms of the, the Senate, which is, is, is a different thing, you know, I'll dust my crystal ball off for you, but I want to caution because pr- pr- predictions are a fool's errand in this business, yeah. especially yep. if races are genuinely tight. Um, that said, I wrote a piece a little while ago. One of the dynamics driving the Senate race that hasn't been adequately taken into account is the fact that a lot of Tea Party governors are up and 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 are likely to going to lose, um, and that has down ballot um, impact. Um, history says that in the sixth year of a president's term, uh, the, the opposition party is supposed to do really really well. Democrats took the Senate under Ronald Reagan in 1986. Um, and that's where the president had approval ratings that were higher than, than this president's right now. Um, but the economy's improving, and, and Democrats, particularly Southern Democrats in the Senate races, are doing much, much, much better than expected. Uh, Mark Pryor in Arkansas, uh, Mary Landrau in um, Louisiana, Kay Hagan in North Carolina. Um, the Democrats have a really bad hand this election. They're defending seats in deep red states. People um, have have walked away, um, so they're you know they got a bad hand. Uh, so the the edge is for uh, Republicans to take the Senate, and that's conventional wisdom. I think conventional wisdom could be mistaken here. I think it's going to be very close. You could see a fifty fifty Senate. Um, you know, um, you, you could see Democrats hold on by one or Republicans hold on by one. But I think the, the reports of a Republican wave election are dramatically exaggerated, in part because I think people can do the math and see that, that Republican control of the House um, has been a big part of the problem in terms of just getting government to work um, and, 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 and in the national interest, not about parties here. Um, so, so, you know, look for those races. Those are the really key ones. Um, you know, a guy could throw in Colorado is a really interesting and very close race. Yes. Uh, but, but, but I bet Democrats do slightly better than expected uh, against the backdrop of having a really, really, really bad hand. Um, the best they'll do is hold on to the Senate by one or two. Um, um, but, 
but that's a possibility. Yeah. Well, certainly, uh, you know, so many races to watch with, with Colorado, Georgia, Louisiana. I mean, you know, the the list just goes on. Uh, the book is Wing Nuts, Extremism in the Age of Obama. John Avlon is the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast. He's also a CNN contributor. Uh, this is just the most recent of his books. John, thank you so much for taking the time with me. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.